0: That's linkedin.com slash MPN. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy.
2: mike carlin
3: hello and welcome to uncorking a story i'm your host mike carlin and today i'm excited to introduce you to charlotte maya charlotte writes about suicide loss resilience and hope on her blog Suchetuesdays.com. widowed at 39 when her children were six and eight charlotte's writing explores the intersections of grief parenting and self-care particularly within the context of suicide her work has been highlighted in Hippocampus Magazine and on The Mighty, and she's been featured on the A2A Alliance and Your Next Chapter podcast with Angela Raspis. She joins me today to talk about her memoir, Sushi Tuesdays, A Memoir of Loss, Love, and Family Resilience. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Charlotte.
1: Thanks, Mike. I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you.
3: I'm happy to have you here as well. And and I'm curious, um, I ask every author the same question um, and and you're no different, which is where does your story as an author begin?
1: I love this question so much because, of course, you can answer it in a lot of ways. Does it start with that first C minus on my first freshman English paper in college in a class I thought would be my easy A Does it begin by my senior year when I switched my major from engineering to English and took a poetry writing class that I absolutely adored? Does it start when I decide to go to law school because, you know, poetry isn't really lucrative? And or does it start when I started law school, which is where I met Sam, my husband, or does it start 17 years later, which is where the memoir begins when I came home to discover a policeman and a priest in my driveway there to deliver the news of Sam's suicide. And, uh, since that's where the book begins, I think that's kind of where my author's journey begins. I always thought I would write a book. I never thought it would be about Sam's death.
3: Yeah. Um, I'm curious just, it's so much to unpack there. I want to go back to a few pivots maybe that you made. Um, one is going from engineering to English and then, you know, potentially going to law school. Um, Tell me about pivoting from engineering to English, because I can't think of two things that are, I don't say diametrically opposed, um, but are quite different from each other. What what was going on?
1: Yeah, I started off as an engineering major. So I was taking, you know, calculus, physics, chemistry, the big three, we called them. And I took this English class I didn't need to take because I had taken the advanced placement course and I AP'd out of it. And so I thought, oh, this will be a great easy A to balance sort of the math and I did fine in my physics and chemistry and calculus and my first paper on my English in from my English class had a C minus and I just kind of went. <laughs> um, and then I worked really, really hard and my next paper, I got a C and I kept working hard. My next paper, I got a C plus. And by the end of the semester, I got an A on my very last paper in this class and it was, I worked harder for that class than I did for my other classes, but I liked it more. Mm. And what's great about switching from engineering to English is that then I didn't have to take any more, um, um, what do you call it? General ed classes. Oh. I didn't have to take physics for poets because I had already taken physics for physicists. So I was done. Then I could take all the classes I wanted to take.
3: What, so, what do you think?
1: that's when I just pivoted there.
3: What do you think you had to either learn or unlearn, um, When taking that English class to move from a C minus to an A.
1: Mm. One of the things the professor told me, she said, Charlotte, you just have to read more. And I was already, like, I already read a lot. I think I had to learn to dive a little deeper. I think I, I think I had to learn just to, to go beyond the first draft, go beyond the second draft, go into the third draft. I, I'm never one who likes to do things last minute. So I would finish my papers a week in advance, set them aside and then come back to it. And I think learning that process and how to dive in, step back, dive back in was one of the things that was really helpful for me as a as a young writer.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's different, you know, from you know, physics or you know, any kind of math where there, there is likely a right or wrong answer, right? So, you know, you, you either solve the problem, you, you've solved the equation, or you haven't. With writing, um, you know, it, it, of course, is a bit more subjective. So after you put the pen down, you know, maybe the temptation is to think that you're done. But mm-hmm. what I found and what so many of my authors on the show tell me is that, hey, that that first draft is never it. You've got to keep going back to it. Um, better to get feedback on it before submitting it from some third party. And even though you may not appreciate the feedback at the time, um, it is typically helpful in sort of making you a, a stronger writer.
1: Yes, I think that's true. I, I th- Just for the scientists who might be listening on the off chance that there's one, um, those, those equations often have multiple answers as mm. well. I think too, I didn't really appreciate probably not till I wrote this book actually the the sort of group project nature that is writing to get that feedback to because you know I get so I'm in my own perspective right and it's a memoir so it it is it's certainly my perspective and then trying to bring my reader along to see what I see and understand it in the way I see it and then get that on the page. And so the feedback from writing coaches or um, early readers is really interesting because they, of course, bring themselves to the page. And so then I get the opportunity to see whether or not I've brought them along the journey that I've taken.
3: Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about that journey and kind of where it begins, which is, you know, you mentioned, you know, um, coming uh, home to a scene where that that nobody wants to come home to. And, you know, you mentioned sort of the police and a priest there. Never a good combo plate. No. Um, waiting for you at home. So just tell me a little bit about, you know, whatever you can share about that. I'd love to hear it.
1: Yeah. Well, I had we had two kids. They're six and eight. And I had taken the kids out um, first to a soccer game and then to a hike and Sam told me that he was going to stay home and take a nap which made sense because he was tired and he had a long week and um and but what didn't make sense is when I was out at the at the hike it, he, I I didn't hear from him and so it was a little it was just strange and then when I got home with the kids in the car I was expecting to see Sam's car in front of the house and it wasn't there. And instead there was a police car I pull into the driveway and there's a policewoman, a policeman and a priest. And so they took me into the house and the policewoman stayed with the kids in the car. And the policeman told me, first that Sam had taken his own life. And then he told me that I would have to tell the, they would tell, the police would tell the the children that their father had died, but I would have to tell them how. And he said, and we recommend that you tell them the truth because you do not want them to find out from somebody else. And at a time when nothing made sense, that totally made sense. So that honesty and transparency really guided my journey as a young widow. And as the single parent of two young children, um, it's the hardest thing I've ever done to tell my six and eight year old children that their father had taken his own life and also my kids know that they can trust me for honest answers to life's hardest questions they're 22 and 24 now so we've had a lot of conversations since then you know we start off with little words dead daddy sad died we said died i didn't say passed on i didn't mm-hmm. say we lost him that's confusing where where did you lose him doesn't make any sense to a child so we were very transparent and you know we cannot solve the problem of suicide with silence So that honesty and transparency has really guided my journey both as a as a human and as a writer
3: yeah i mean on the show i've i've had the um i don't know if it's honor um but of you know the 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 chance to interview people who um were suicidal um and wrote memoirs about sort of that that time and, and how they kind of overcame it but um how how did you first deal with you know Sam's death, um, and it just I'm sure you had a number of questions like you know you know how how did I not see this coming or, I mean how how did you process it?
1: That's a great question. And yes, I had all those questions. Um, I was terrified that I would be ostracized because of how Sam died. Because there is a lot of stigma and shame around suicide, both for people who are suffering and for those of us who've lost someone to um, suicide. And I think that one of the risks is that stigma and shame reduces the person's life to the last act of their life. And that's not fair. And it's not um, it's not true. They're so much bigger than that last moment. But I was afraid to say it out loud but what I found was exactly the opposite. So the first day, for example, that I brought the kids to school, Sam died on a Saturday and I took the kids to school on Monday because um, it, it, it made sense to me that they needed structure and consistency. And so we walked up the blocks to school and I took them to their classrooms and I squatted down, I looked in their little eyes and I said, okay, whenever you're ready to come home, Let your teacher know, and I will come get you. And I didn't know whether they'd last five minutes or 10 minutes or half an hour to lunch, but they had lasted the whole day. And when I turned around, when I had walked the kids to school, what I found was like people were averting their eyes and kind of moving away from us. And I thought, okay, here's, here's where it begins. And after I had dropped the kids off at their classrooms and started walking back home, what I found was the opposite is people were drawn toward me and I heard just so much um, comfort and encouragement. And I live in a pretty small town in Southern California and I had gone to high school here. So people had seen the police car in front of my house. I couldn't have hidden Sam's suicide if I had tried. And people were just drawn to me. And the more I would talk about what that process is like, what did I miss? How did I miss it? Um, people wanted to have that conversation. And so instead of finding that people were driven away, what I found is that people actually wanted to know people really care. People don't want to, um, people to suffer in silence. It doesn't help. Yeah. So when we draw to each other and have those conversations, that's where the healing began. And they kept telling me, Charlotte, you have to write the book. You have to write the book. So I, I, I did. It took me 10 years, but I did.
3: Yeah. Well, tell me about um, just the origin of the name Sushi Tuesdays. Mm. It is a pretty, um, it's it's interesting. Tell me a little bit more about it.
1: Yeah. You don't have to like sushi to like Sushi Tuesdays. (laughs) Uh, Some people might be grateful to know. Sushi Tuesday started as my day for self-care, actually. I had a yoga class that I really liked on that was on Tuesday mornings. And then my therapist had a recurring time slot that opened up on Tuesdays. So Tuesdays became my day, my day for Charlotte. So I'd take the kids to school in the morning. And um, then I went to yoga. And then I went to therapy. And sometimes I would take myself out to sushi. Because like I said, they were little. So they didn't really care about sushi. and But I didn't make appointments to meet with... Um, lawyers or Cpas or anybody else I I didn't even make dates for coffee with friends it was truly just sort of my cocoon time and as a practical matter it wasn't the whole day it was just from nine to two or whatever time the kids were in school but you know when you're a single parent that time is significant and it was really my day to figure out what does Charlotte need do I need to go for a walk do I want to crawl back into bed and cry all good options all allowed do I want to go to sushi do I want to do I need to eat at all? I probably did because I sort of lost my appetite, but what do I want? What would what would feed me? Do I need to just sit? Can I just sit in the sunshine or can I just sit and listen to the rainfall? What do I need for my own healing? So Sushi Tuesdays was really my day about self-care.
3: Okay. And that leads to a blog. Um, and I'm curious, what, what role did writing play in your healing process?
1: This is such a great question. Um, I started the blog several years after Sam's death, and I feel like the the writing was somewhat therapeutic, but mostly what was therapeutic was therapy. I had therapy for, for that, and the writing was more kind of learning the craft, so blog post, as you know, is about a thousand words and a full-length memoir is about a hundred thousand words. So I started with the blog because a book was too overwhelming. And after writing a, you know, a bunch of blog posts, I, I kept the post the, the blog going for several years and printed out all the posts. I had a stack. It looked like it was a book, but then when I read through it, it didn't tell. It didn't have a beginning, middle, and end. It didn't tell yeah. a coherent, cohesive story. So I had to kind of step back and go, "Okay, how am I going to get there from here?" And uh, that's when I hired a book coach, and 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 handed her the stack. Let her, <laughs> let her help guide me. And uh, so we worked together. After six months, we worked together for six months and created an outline. It was a hundred pages, single space. It was a really robust outline. And I I kind of thought after that, that the book would write itself, which it did not. So, (laughs) so I wrote a first draft and a second draft and a third draft. And by the fifth draft, I was, I was ready for it to go to a larger audience.
3: You know, you think that starting with, you know, all these blog posts and these, you know, I'm sure tens of thousands of words that you've written, um, you know it might be easy to kind of put that all together and make a novel. And I, I had a uh, a priest on this show um, who who uh, who thought the same thing. He he had um he runs a Catholic uh, radio show on Sirius, and he said, you know, I had all of these, you know, he called a mass class, you know, mm-hmm. all of these questions and answers that I did on the radio. Um, and I figured I could just take all the transcripts of those and kind of put together this book. And he's like, "I'll never do it again <laughs> because it was so." <laughs> I mean, it was a lot more work than he was anticipating. Um, tell me about this book, Coach. How you found them, um, and the role they played in helping you shape this this memoir.
1: Well, I I she taught a workshop, so I thought, okay, I'll take a workshop and and that'll get me there. And I loved her workshop, but I was still writing these smaller pieces. And, um, but I really liked the way she thought about things. She was really curious. She was really very naturally curious. And so she would ask very intimate questions and that would force me to kind of think about what is the story underneath the story? What's really happening here? And then what she really did for me that I didn't understand was structure, how to structure a full length story. So with a beginning, a middle, an end, an inciting incident, a turning point, how do you get there? And this is, I think, a particular challenge with memoir because it's my own life. Mm. So everything seems important. Everybody is precious to me. And, story only moves forward with conflict, right? So you have to kind of dive into where is the, where is the conflict and think about um, who needs to be in the story, who needs to be a full-fleshed character in the story so that I can move the story forward. And what really is the story I'm trying to tell? Like, I've got this whole life. How am I going to carve it like a, like a piece of marble and carve, you know, chip away the pieces that don't belong until I have a story, until yeah. I have like this the statue that is the story. What is the story I'm trying to tell here?
3: And I think so many authors um and writers grapple with that. Um, whether it's memoir, whether it's, you know, nonfiction, whether it's fiction, um, you know, we 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 send in our hundred thousand pages, or a hundred thousand words rather, not pages. <laughs> <laughs> that would be very scary. Um, That's daunting. <laughs> and then we need an editor to, to chop out 30,000 of them, you know, to, to, mm-hmm. to get it to, you know, where, where mass market books typically are. And, but we do think everything's important. Um, you know, then yeah. we have to realize that, you know, editing is making hard choices and totally that usually, you know, less is more. And, um, you know, taking the advice of, of those editors, agents, whoever, beta readers, um, they do make our, they do make our writing better, but it takes a while to, to, to realize that because there is that ego, especially with younger or newer authors where they say, oh my gosh, all of these words are important. How dare you cut this? And then you realize, well, (laughs) you know, needed to go, (laughs) kind of needed to go. So, um, what's the reaction been to, uh, to the book?
1: I've gotten a lot of really positive um, feedback so far, and I'm I'm very excited about, you know, I, it's always gratifying to hear somebody say, Charlotte, you get the email, Charlotte, it's midnight, and I've been reading your book for three hours, and I cannot put it down except for that I have to put it down because I have to get up early for an appointment tomorrow. Or... Um, you know, somebody else who says, I sat down this morning to flip through your book, and now it's four o'clock. I haven't eaten. I finished it. It's beautiful. I laughed. I cried. And I I can't wait to see you and talk about it more. So that kind of response is really kind of thrilling.
3: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, just, just talking about this topic, um, probably nothing anybody wants to talk about, but how important is it? Um, to talk about it, because we can't pretend it doesn't exist. And there has to be a resource you know, for people who, whose lives have been impacted by yes. suicide or could be impacted by suicide.
1: Well, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in this country, and we don't talk about it. It's the second leading cause of death for the age demographic 25 to 34, which is absolutely horrifying. And so we have to talk about it. The one thing we know helps in this area is talking about it and so i'm just really grateful that people are um willing to have this conversation and i get a lot of hope from the new national lifeline 988 that new national lifeline that's 24 7 everywhere so that just having the lifeline there reminds people that it is normal to struggle mental health is health and and that there are people who care there are resources and you don't have to struggle alone
3: yeah and if if you know if i'm remembering some some statistics um appropriately um there's a, a significant difference between men and women in that age group you mentioned where men are more likely to you know die by suicide than women
1: there is a yes in general three times as many women attempt suicide, but three times as many men die from it. But on there, the CDC just came out with a new report for teenagers and the statistics for teenage girls are absolutely devastating.
3: Oh, wow.
1: So yes, this is something that we have to do better and we can do better. I really believe that we can and that, and that, that we will, um, but it's, it's important to have these conversations in the same way that we're fluent in matters of physical health, we can become fluent in matters of mental health. And how we talk about it matters. Um, people used to use the phrase committed suicide, and you will still hear that. That's a kind of what we're used to hearing. But suicide... The reason we don't like the word committed is it has criminal connotations, right? You commit a crime, but suicide Mm. is not a crime. It's an illness. And when we understand that it's an illness and we can frame our language accordingly, then we can have these conversations that are less judgmental and more healing. And so I know it sometimes seems weird to say suicided, for example, as a verb, but we can get used to that. We, we change our language all the time. And so how we talk about suicide makes a difference. But personally, I'd rather have a glitchy conversation about suicide than no conversation at all. Yeah. So I, I I would encourage people, even if they are afraid of making mistake or using the wrong language, um, it, it, there's really no wrong way to have the conversation. And if somebody is truly suffering and they are thinking about it, you're not going to remind them that they're thinking about suicide by bringing it up. On the contrary, if you mention the word suicide or are you thinking of harming yourself or where are you in this process, just asking the question opens up the space for an answer and that can save a life.
3: Yeah. Well, sometimes all, all, all that's required is a phone call. Yeah. Conversation.
1: And, but also suicide is an illness and, and it's important to, it's so thorny and complicated. It was so much easier for me to forgive Sam than it was for me to forgive myself.
3: What, and what did you feel like you needed to forgive yourself?
1: Because I was his wife. I should have known exactly how much he was suffering. I should have, wouldn't I be the logical person he would have turned to if he had asked anyone at all for help, shouldn't it have been me? So the guilt when you survive a suicide is terrible, right? What if I'd made that phone call? What did I say? What could I have said different? What did I miss? What did I think was normal stress? What did I think was normal back pain, and and so that sort of po- that the suicide autopsy never ends. There are still times when I'll see something in one of our kids and go, "Hmm, I wonder if I should have asked Sam about that." Mm. And you know, the 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 healing is ongoing. There's never a, a a date certain on which you're done. You can check that off or an expiration date for grief, right? The healing continues. We always joke in our house, we don't hide the skeletons in the closets. We put them right out on the walls and the mantelpiece. Because if you love somebody that love remembers, and that's a good thing. It's not bad. And so Sam is still a very vibrant, vibrant part of our conversations. And when I, when I think about Sam and the mistake that he made, what I mean by the mistake that he made is that he didn't ask for help. That's the mistake he made shortly a year after Sam died. Another cousin died from cancer and she'd been fighting cancer for a couple of years. She was 33. And at the funeral, one of the other cousins said, you know, Carol um, was fighting for her life and Sam threw his away. And it made me really mad because Sam was fighting just as hard. Carol had chemo, she had doctors, she had therapists, she had people showing up with casseroles and she had people offering to drive carpool and watch the baby. And Sam was fighting alone. Don't fight alone. We don't have to fight alone. And so that, that is, but it's hard suicide is a very complicated, thorny grief to untangle.
3: Yeah. Um, Have your kids read the book?
1: yes. Um, Well, (laughs) one of them has read it beginning to end. One of them has read most of it. Anything that the kids were in was probably in a blog post that I had already run by them. It is very hard for them to read. And also the one who's read most of the book, but not all of it said, mom, you did a really good job of making sure this was from your perspective. And I really appreciated that because he was six when his father died. And so I remember some of the things he said, but his experience of grief is different than mine.
3: Yeah. And, and they're not only reading of course, about their father, they're reading about you Um, and kind of getting to know you in a way that maybe some children don't really get to know their, their parents that intimately.
1: And maybe don't want to. Right. Because we don't always like to think of our parents as the full range of their human experience. Yeah,
3: that's that's interesting. Um, My parents are 90 and 89. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm seeing them in a much different way than I saw them when I was growing up, Um, because when I was growing up, they were these like, you know, hardworking, um, you know, had all the answers, never needed help, um, and now I see them in their later years and, um, you know, the mental, yeah, they're slowing down. You know, my mother yeah. can't remember anything, still a very happy person, but you know, she can't remember a thing. And <laughs> my father's now the primary caretaker and a role that he never had. So I'm actually, and now mm. that I have my own children who are adults, I have, I think much more empathy now for my parents than I, certainly than I could have um, before, yes. but now I'm kind of seeing them in a, in a completely different light and not necessarily one that I, needed to or wanted to, but it's, it's a circle <laughs> of life thing, I guess. Well, I think it's
1: hard too, when you see your parents struggle and suffer and, and if they, especially if they had always been robust and strong your whole life, it, it's, it's part of the loss of who they were and then the pressure to step up and then be the caretaker, maybe yourself. It's the, the
3: sandwich Situation yeah. is real. That's right. That's right. I feel like I just got rid of my kids. I know. Uh, I don't want to say I got rid of them, right? But you know, they're for the most part out of the house. They're all you know in in college, and they yeah. come back in the summers. But now it's like, whoa! Now I have to. I've got to change diapers for older people now. <laughs>
1: so well, I feel like this. So um, as, as you know, if you've read the book, I, I did accidentally fall in love with the most eligible widower in town and we got married. And, um, so we have four kids and now they, the youngest of our collective four is about to graduate from college, knock on wood. And I feel like I'm launching this book and now Charlotte has finally figured out what she wants to do with her grown up life. So it's, I feel that like, okay, I did. I I launched the children and now I get to grow up too.
3: Yeah. I have to ask about, um, what's over your right. I'm sorry, your left shoulder. No, your right shoulder. I get my right and left mixed up. Tell me about that. That painting. It looks like a painting
1: rain and shine. It is a painting rain and shine. When Tim and I got married, the first song, our first dance was come rain or come shine. And because we had both been widowed, um, we knew what for better and for worse looks like in sickness and in health. Tim's first wife, Debbie had died from colon cancer when she was 41. So, you know, our top 10 list of bad days around here is pretty harrowing. And so we, um, but you know, if, if, if you can love through rain and shine, that's everything.
3: Yeah. That's beautiful. Um, well, I want to ask you some light questions. Yes, um, right. So and one one of the ways in which I get to know my my guests a bit more is through pop culture. So I'm curious, Charlotte, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV?
1: Okay. I am one of the worst television watchers you will probably ever <laughs> interview. I um <laughs> I in high school I remember sometimes sneaking home um and trying to get home early enough so that I could get watch an, uh, an episode a rerun of Charlie's Angels before my parents came home and I had to start home yes exactly <laughs> um <laughs> I think I watched a little cheers um I just I wasn't a a big television watcher. I'll tell you, my my father read the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy to my sister and me. And I think we were in junior high when he started. And I think I was a junior or senior in high school by the time we got to the end of that trilogy. So that kind of lets you know where my 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 nose was usually in a book.
3: Well, tell me. Uh, well, if not for not not TV, tell me what were your uh, favorite authors, favorite types of book to read when you were growing up.
1: Well, of course, I loved Charlotte's Web,
3: um, mm.
1: Nancy Drew. I read a lot of Nancy Drew when I was little. Where the Red Fern Grows was one of Wilson Rawls, one of my favorites. Um, those are some of my favorites as a okay. young child. Yeah,
3: fair enough. Uh, what about music when you were growing up? Were you uh, did you enjoy music?
1: <laughs> I took a lot of piano lessons, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so it was kind of a treat when I got to listen to pop music. Um, I loved Billy Joel, David Bowie, um, Depeche Mode. In high mm. school, I listened a lot of Depeche Mode, um, Pink Floyd.
3: Oh, David Gilmore, He's one of my favorite guitar players, hands down. Such a great tone. Yeah. I got to see Billy Joel this past summer at Madison Square Garden. Um, and I think I cried three or four times um, mm. during that show. You know, it was so, such a powerful show. I, I mean, I've loved his music forever, but hearing it live and that just the way some of those songs hit me as an adult, um, yeah. like my life, um, which was the theme song to Bosom Buddies. I know you were not a big TV person, but there used to be a show called mm-hmm. Bosom Buddies yeah. with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks, uh-huh. Peter Scoleri. Um, and that was the first time I ever heard that song moving out was, was in the, uh, uh, the theme song to that show. And, but I heard that song and I'm not moving out, um, my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, cause moving out was one of the other songs that I started bawling during. Um, and I'm realizing <laughs> at the show, I'm like, maybe my emotions are not regulating well today. I don't know, <laughs> but.
1: It's well, like- it's hard to let the children go. And mm-hmm. I know your yours are triplets. So yeah. Having a very full nest to a very empty nest at once it sounds pretty dramatic to me. I had four children over the course of, so you know, um, it takes a lot longer to sort of empty the nest. You can titrate it in a yeah. different way, but it's right. very emotional. It's 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 very emotional every time a child leaves. And so I can only imagine for your very full nest to a very quiet one would. Would be very teary. Yeah,
3: it's tough. I I would find myself being like, "Hey, does anyone need me to bring them anything up at school?" I mean, I got some time. If does anyone did anyone forget a jacket? Did did you guys pack a lunch today? Can I bring you lunch?
1: Yeah, all those lost, those forgotten calculators, and you're like, "Dang it! I don't have time to run to the school today." Now you kind of like, "No, Dad,
3: it's fine." Although, yeah, Yeah, the cat's in
1: the cradle is real.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, In terms of publishing, um, what what were some lessons you felt like you may have learned the hard way going through the publishing process?
1: Mm, That's an interesting question. I think I was really naive about what it takes to get a book from Word document into bookshelves. And I don't think that's bad because I think you have to do all the steps in order And so when I, when I finally had a manuscript that I was really excited about and ready to share with the world, then um, I learned I had to get an agent. I'm like, oh, (laughs) that sounds, how how do you do that? (laughs) So I did that. And then, you know, she started pitching publishers and like, okay, well, how do we do that? I just feel like, I guess I just kind of learned along the way, and in some ways, everything was sort of a surprise. I guess I, I just—I don't know—I like learning, so maybe that just worked in my favor that I yeah. would get to, you know, get to the next place and go. Okay, now what I need? Um, now, now I need a publicist. How exciting is that?
3: So, <laughs> and I know you and, found and a then
0: good one. And here we are. I did. because
3: <laughs> they found me, but no, I actually know your publicist. <laughs> Pretty well, and she's fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, Um, she's fantastic. But finding the agent, I'm curious, um, how, how did you find your agent? How long did it take?
1: So the book coach that I mentioned, one of the things that she does, her workshops are 10 weeks long. And during one of the weeks, she always has an author visit. And I always liked going to the author visits because I always learned something. And she invites alumni from the workshop to go to that author visit. And then after COVID, she started doing the author visits online, which was fantastic because then it was a lot easier for me to zoom in for an hour to meet the author and I felt like I always learned something from the author so one of the weeks, or one of the workshops, uh, this agent came on to talk about the publishing process. Oh, this is perfect because I have a manuscript, and now I have to find an agent. And she talked about the different options for publishing. And she was very generous with her information and her time. And at the end of the Zoom, she gave us her email. And so I emailed her because I had some questions about some of the different publishing options. and. She said, "Your book sounds so interesting." She said, "I don't have time right now to agent anything, but I am curious and I'd like to read it. So would you mind sending it to me?" I said, "Sure, no problem. And in the meantime she had given me some other resources and I had started pitching other agents and so I sent her the manuscript and I didn't hear back from her for a couple of weeks. So I thought, okay, well, she um, doesn't really have anything good to say. So she's not saying anything at all. And then I got an email from her on a Sunday saying, would you have time to talk Monday or Wednesday? So of course I said, yes, Monday. And, um, and I sort of prepared myself for the feedback she was going to give me. It's, you know, it's, it's beautiful, but it's too long. You need to cut out 50 pages or it, it's beautiful, but you need to finish it earlier or you need to start it faster or whatever it was going to be. And I, I just really put myself in the mindset that whatever information she's willing to give me is a win because it's more information than I would have had without whatever she has to say. So I pick up the phone, we start chatting and she's going on and on about how beautiful this book is. And about 15, 20 minutes into the conversation, I said, can I, can I ask a really stupid question? And she said, yes. I said, are you offering to represent me? And she said, oh, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in some ways, it's sort of the dream scenario because I got a, an agent. I found an agent who just really loved this manuscript. And she had very few little like polishing changes and was ready to go. So she just really got it. She got the story. She got that, how important it is to talk about suicide, how, um, how, uh, um, how we can talk about suicide in a way that is gentle and humanizing and true and honest. It's, um, and, and here we are.
3: And here we are. And it, it, I mean, you have so much to thank that, that book coach for as well. Um, because, you know, it sounds like she really helped you get this from idea to manuscript to story. And then, of course, you know, the link pretty much direct link to to that agent. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. it is uh, it is fantastic. Um, anything you would tell your younger self, let's say you could go back in time and, and maybe it's, you know, the, the younger Charlotte who's getting those C minuses on those papers. Um, anything you would whisper into her ear, you know, from your your sort of, you know, who charlotte is now what what would you tell the younger charlotte if you can give them her some words of advice
1: i think i might tell her something that i tell my own kids a lot which is that the universe is already saying yes you just have to ask you might have to keep asking and asking can be the hardest part but just keep asking the universe is already saying yes
3: all right just keep asking uh, Charlotte, um, if people want to reach out to you, do you have a website or social media that we can point them to?
1: I do Charlotte Maya. It's charlotte-maya.com. And I'm on Instagram as Charlotte Maya writer. And, um, and there's an email on my, on my website. The website has all the links. So that's the, usually the easiest way to go.
3: All right. We'll be sure to put the website and all of those other links in our show notes. Uh, Charlotte, thank you so much for stopping by uncorking a story and letting me uncork yours.
1: Mike, thanks so much for including me. Appreciate it.
2: Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.
0: You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Steve Turney hosts a great podcast geared toward mental health marketers called The Boost. or search for The Boost wherever you get your podcasts. You heard him. Go subscribe.